kind of care is necessary while a cast is still wet? Well, cast care is something that, that you need to teach the patient as well as know yourself. To begin with, uh, old plaster casts, and they're still widely used, uh, the, the, mat the maturing of that uh, plaster after the water is applied to it is an exothermic reaction, and it causes heat, uh, and the patient will feel that and may become concerned about it. We want to keep the cast open to the room air to increase the evaporation of water and dissipation of heat, which can take 24 to 48 hours. Uh, we do not want to subject the new cast to abnormal stresses or getting it wet or soiling, for to do so will deform the cast and may make it necessary to have the cast replaced. We don't want to handle the cast with things that will dent it, like our fingers. We want to handle it with our open palms. Once the cast is dry, if necessary, we can finish the edge by trimming it. Um, it's absolutely critical that you and the patient and the patient's family know um, before discharge about the need for frequent neurovascular checks and to compare the injured limb to the unaffected limb. We want to do, when we're doing neurovascular checks, we want to assess the color, the temperature, the capillary refill. We want to assess for edema, pulses, sensation, and movement. Ideally, we elevate the fractured extremity of above the heart for 48 hours. If it's edematous, we use ice. We do range of motion above and below the injury if possible. We try to convince the patient not to pull the padding out, not to scratch, not to insert anything into the cast, to keep it dry, to not bear weight for the first 48 hours on it, not to cover it with plastic for prolonged times, get it dry if it gets wet, and to report increases in pain, swelling increased uh, associated with pain, discoloration to the toes, pain of motion, or burning and tingling in the affected extremity, along with keeping up their follow-up appointments. Other than a cast that is too tight, what causes change in the circulation, motion, and sensation? Well, certainly a cast tight can a, ca a tight cast can be a problem. Fortunately, it's easily fixed by bivalving the calf or cast or putting windows in it. Something that's far more difficult to control is something called compartment syndrome. <sighs> compartment syndrome is compression of the structures in a, a finite area that's contained by fascial uh, walls. There are compartments in the forearms and in the leg below the knee created by fascia. And if there's edema within those fascial compartments, uh, it can obstruct circulation. It requires immediate attention. As the pressure increases, it obstructs the venous circulation, then the arterial circulation. There's a decrease in circulation, motion, and sensation, ischemia. Cells die, and contractures can result with a profound loss of function. It's important to know the uh, signs and symptoms, and they are the five Ps. Pain, which is an early sign, especially when the pain is not relieved by the analgesia that you would expect it to be relieved by paresthesia, paralysis, pallor, and pulselessness. Pulselessness is an ominous sign. All patients should have regular circulation motion and sensation checks, and the management is a prompt diagnosis, elevation and ice if it's early, um, loosening the cast or the bandage if it's early and the, the compartment syndrome hasn't progressed, decreasing the, uh, the weight of traction in some cases, but for most cases, People with true compartment syndrome need surgical fasciotomy. Uh, that's where the actual, the skin is incised, as is the fascia that contains those compartments, 
It's, it's open from joint to joint. These people will have huge incisions running from wrist to elbow or from knee to ankle. Um, but it's important because if it is not treated, compartment syndrome can lead to amputation, or if amputation's not done, it can lead to sepsis and death. What should I teach a patient who has a cast on one ankle about how to use crutches? Well, we want, for that sort of patient, we can teach what's called a three-point gait. The three-point gait uh, is an orthopedic gait which requires good balance and good arm strength. Uh, it can be used with a walker as well. It's used when complete weight bearing is allowed on one foot and none or partial weight bearing is allowed on the other. The technique is both crutches and the injured foot are advanced together, then the weight-bearing foot is moved up to the crutches, and then it's repeated. Other important principles to teach uh, are things like the patient's supposed to bear their weight on their hands, not on their axillae. Uh, the beginning stance is a tripod position where the crutches are about 8 to 10 inches in front of and to the sides of the toes. Um, it's, it sounds silly, but we really need to teach this stuff to patients because many patients think they know how to use crutches um, but don't. They need to be told about the hazards of inappropriate uses, which can be falls and back pain, and if they let the crutches rest in their, ac their axilla as opposed to with their weight on their hands, they can damage the brachial plexus. They should take short, slow steps, keep the crutches close to their body, be wary of polished floors, wet floors, throw rugs, plush carpets, grass, soft ground, and bedclothes that may be on the floor and snag a crutch. We need to allow extra time for the patient to get from place to place, probably teach them to use a backpack to carry things. Um, they need to make sure that the tips on the ends of the crutches have not become too worn to work. Um, and they may need to adjust the height of the crutches as they use different shoes. They should avoid the use of sedatives and narcotics and alcohol while using crutches because it increases the risk of falling. You need to check to make sure that there's at least two inches space between the axilla and the top of the crutch. Uh, excuse me, I mean two, not two inches, two to three finger breadths between the axillary fold and the crutch. I made a mistake. The hand grips should be adjusted to allow the elbows to be bent 20 to 30 degrees. We need to make sure all the nuts and bolts on the crutches are secure. We want to document the teaching in case the child, the, the client should fall later. And we need to monitor the patient demonstrating uh, crutch walking before letting them out on their own. I know there are several different kinds of crutch gates. Could you explain their differences and when I should use them? Sure, there are five gates in all. It's good to teach two so that the patient can alternate to prevent fatigue. We always start from a tripod stance. There's the four-point alternating gate. Uh, this is if the patient has full or partial weight bearing on both feet. It's relatively safe and a slow gate. It's good for older or less stable patients. It requires constant shifting of the weight and makes it very slow. The technique is place the right crutch forward, then the left foot, then the left crutch, then the right foot. They just alternate, sort of like a horse. Two-point gait is similar to walking. They have full or partial weight bearing on both feet. It's faster than the four-point, but provides less support. Uh, the technique is right crutch and left foot together, left crutch and right foot advance together, and then repeating. There's the swing two gait, which provides full or partial weight bearing to both feet. Um, it's a very stable gait, requires arm strength such as uh, 
lifting the body through in a rapid fashion. Uh, this is used a lot by the permanently disabled who had the time to build their strength. They advance both crutches together and then swing the body forward to the crutches. The swing through is just the same. However, you swing the body forward beyond the crutches. This is something that the young and athletic sometimes master while recuperating from their fractured uh, ankle. I can imagine using stairs could be quite dangerous for a patient on crutches. What should I teach to make it safer? Well, you need to teach how to do it. Uh, if there's a handrail, they should use it and put both crutches together when going up. Put both crutches um, on the side opposite the rail, hold the rail firmly, support their weight between the crutch and the rail, and leave the crutches on the step and move the stronger foot higher. Leave the weaker leg behind and let it sort of just trail behind. We had straighten up and advance the crutches and then the leg. Without a rail, it's the same principle. We leave the crutches on the step and the good leg is moved up uh, and then advance the crutches and the weak leg. Remember, we go up with the good and down with the bad, which means we go up with the good leg and leave the bad leg down below. We always also keep the crutches between the patient and the bottom. We never put the crutches on the step above them. Going downstairs is even more dangerous and they need to go slowly. They use the rail if it's available. They hold both crutches as before. Um, they place the crutches on the lower step and extend down, uh, and step downward. Without the rail, they do the same thing. Uh, they just advance the weaker leg with the crutches. Remember, the stronger extremity shares the work of raising and lowering the body. Can you tell me why the person with the cane should hold the cane on the good or unaffected side? Well, the cane's used mostly to help with balance and support and redistribute the weight. Um, we, dis we sort of imitate the same motion we have when normally walking, which is the opposite arm and leg moving together. So we put the cane on the side opposite the weak leg so that it will move with the weak leg. Uh, that way, uh, it's a much very natural stance and helps support that weak extremity. We need to remember to check the fit. The elbow should flex about 30 degrees. The handle should be at the level of the greater tro trochanter. A quad cane can be used because it offers more stability on uneven surfaces. The technique is to hold the cane on the side opposite the patient, uh, the, uh, the weak extremity, advance the cane at the same time the weak leg is moved forward, keep the cane close to the body, and bear down when the weak leg begins to swing. I often have patients who are ambulating with a walker. What should I know about using a walker? A walker is a four-point device that's very stable. To fit it to the patient, you adjust so that when the hands are on the walker grips, the elbow has about 20 to 30 degrees of flexion. You need to make sure the patient's using sturdy, non-slip shoes. The te technique is to hold the grips, to lift the walker and place it in front while leaning slightly forward, and then to walk into the walker, supporting the weight when advancing the weaker leg. They regain their balance and then repeat the procedure. Why do some patients who have fractures need to be in traction? we need to remember the two goals of managing fractures. One is to realign the bone fragments, and the other is to immobilize the patient to allow the callus to build. Remember, if the bones move during that period, it breaks down the callus and they have to start all over. Traction is the application of a pulling force to a body part that is used to reduce, align the bones, to immobilize the bones, to decrease muscle spasms, to decrease deformity, and to increase the space in a joint in some cases. There's two types. There's straight and running. Uh, the straight is 
pulling in a straight line, and the running is a, well, both, excuse me, both the straight and running are pulling traction in a straight line. Balanced suspension is more complex, which both supports the extremity in one direction and then exerts traction at right angles to that support. I always get confused with all the ropes around traction. Can you help to make it simple? I can try. Let's remember some gentle, general rules. There's the weights, but then there's a counter-traction to the weights, which is the patient's body weight and can be um, accentuated by the position of the bed, such as um, if the weights are pulling the patient to the foot of the bed, we can raise the foot of the bed in some cases up on blocks to keep the patient from sliding that way. It is important to maintain the line of pull by keeping the patient in the centered in the bed and in good alignment. We must remember the weights must hang freely. They should not be on the floor. They should not be on the bed. Um, the, ropes, the ropes should be unobstructed and not wearing against something other than the pulleys. The knots should be intact. And, and the knots should not be in the pulleys because they will impair uh, free movement of the weight and uh, the patient. The weights are changed only on the order of a physician and usually based on his or her evaluation of the x-rays. There are two general classes of traction, one being skin traction and the other skeletal. Skin traction is applying force directly to the skin through an adhesive or tape or uh, compressive canvas material. It's transmitted directly to the musculoskeletal structures through the skin. Uh, it's very time limited. Uh, we must not exceed the tolerance of the skin for this traction or the skin will slough right off. We never use more than four to seven pounds per extremity or greater than 20, 10 to 20 pounds for the pelvis. We don't use it if there's open wounds. Um, and if we need to give a lot of weight over a long time, we'll use skeletal traction. Skeletal traction is where we apply the weights directly to a device um, that goes through the skin into the bones. That's the alternative to skin traction. Let's talk about an example of, of skin traction. Bucks is a very common kind of skin traction that's used for hip, fra hip injuries, femur injuries, knee and back conditions. It's commonly used as a temporary pre-op measure, such as for a patient with a fractured hip. And it's just used to pull against the contracted muscles and keep everything in alignment until the patient get to the, can get to the OR. It can be used bilaterally. We need to be careful when we use it in the aged because their skin is fragile. Um, and it can be damaged by the traction. The way this is applied is the patient um, is recumbent with the lower leg secured by a traction um, device that keeps the heel off the bed. Um, and it's typically just a big uh, boot that is strapped around the patient's leg. If, they are, if you're using an adhesive device to provide the traction, any complaint of burning should be uh, assessed for a reaction to the adhesive, to this tape, or just to having too much traction on, uh, sometimes that will manifest as a burning sensation at the site of the adhesive. He still has not talked about ankylosing spondylitis, uh, lordosis, all these things are on the NCLEX, but let me give him a chance. Uh, and for sure, if he doesn't do it, I'll, uh, I'll come in and tell you what was on the NCLEX. Hey or just to having too much traction on, uh, sometimes that will manifest as a burning sensation at the site of the adhesive. Another common form of traction is Bryant traction used for femur fractures of kids who are less than two years old or up to 30 pounds. 
In this traction, the patient is supine with both legs up. The buttocks are off of the bed, and the upper, upper extremities are secured to traction and are straight up in the air. When using this, we need to check for pressure sites over the head of the fibula and the um, back of the patient's head, the dorsum of the foot, and of course the scapulae and shoulder and, tend and the Achilles tendon. We check, to we check to be sure the bandage is secure and that the boot that's holding the patient up has not slipped. Cervical head halter traction, on the other hand, is used to relieve muscle spasm, uh, particularly of degenerative or arthritic problems of the cervical vertebra. It's used for adults only. The weights are typically 5 to 15 pounds. Uh, the patient is kept in a high or low fowler's position. The halter is placed under the chin, around the face, and the back of the head. We may need to adjust it if the patient complains of pain to the temporomandibular joint, the chin, or the teeth. Since we're putting upward pressure on the jaw, the teeth are not perfectly aligned. That may cause pain as the pressure is being transmitted in part via the teeth. The patient typically can remove this during their sleep sleeping time, and it can be used at home. Tell me about skeletal traction. Well, I alluded to skeletal traction a moment ago. It's where we apply the traction to the um, bones very directly with wires or pins through the skin, through the bone, and then those wires or pins are attached via rope to a weight. Um, we need to <clears throat> we use it when we have weight when we need to apply weights of more than 10 pounds or when traction is needed for a long time. Its advantages are that its disadvantages are that um, if you use too much weight you can delay bone union, you can get infection at the pin sites. And since the patient's going to be trapped in bed, they are prone to all the complications of prolonged immobility. If used to immobilize the cervical spine, uh, we can use it at any age, use weights of anywhere from 20 to 30 pounds. When this is done, the patient is usually on a striker bed uh, or a rotokinetic bed or something that allows us to turn the patient without twisting their neck. The way the traction is applied to the skull is through tongs that are placed bilaterally with the pins entering the temporal bone just above the ears. We want to be careful that we never lift the weights on a patient in cervical traction because it could result in sudden decompression or sudden compression of nerve roots and uh, nervous dysfunction as a result. The patient is often severely injured or has a spinal cord injury when they require skeletal cervical traction. Of course, they require pin care about every four hours to keep those sites clean. Balanced suspension is a form of skeletal traction, which is used to realign fractures of the femur. It can be used for anyone over the age of three, and the weights are 20 to 30 pounds. The patient is supine. There's a pin or wire through the upper tibia. Now, we're using this for a femur fracture, but the pin goes through the tibia. And the thigh and leg are suspended in the Thomas sling with Pearson attachments, which allows the, the knee to be flexed a little bit and keeps the leg up off the bed. Uh, the patient can turn about 30 degrees side to side. We need to be wary to watch for compartment syndrome with this and the patient can usually lift themselves up in bed with the help of an overbed trapeze. There are so many kinds of traction. In general, what are some of the things I need to remember? Well, for skin traction, it's important for you to maintain the traction, keep the limb in a neutral position. You're less likely to be able to turn the patient from side to side than in, than in skeletal traction. And remember, you can loosen the, the device that's attached to the skin for skin assessment if the limb is supported by another nurse. 
We need to assess for potential skin breakdown, particularly with the adhesive device that's being used for it. Some people have an allergic reaction. You need to daily palpate over the traction tapes to detect, detect tenderness. You need to visually inspect the Achilles tendon if the device covers it. And we need to <clears throat> be wary of nerve pressure. Uh, you see, with traction to the lower extremity, there's the potential for injury to the peroneal nerve, which passes around the head of the, the neck of the fibula. Pressure there can cause foot drop, so we assess circulation, motion, and sensation. And in specific, we assess the ability of the patient to dorsiflex and plantar flex their foot. If there's traction to the arm, there's risk of ulnar nerve injury. So we want to assess the, abilities to, the patient's ability to actively abduct their little finger, and we assess sensation on the ulnar side of the little finger. If there's any changes in these sensations or motion, we notify the physician immediately. Of course, we check for distal pulses and warmth and color of skin and assess for Homan sign. For skeletal traction, we need to maintain the traction, uh, make sure the ropes and weights are all free and that the patient has not slept down in bed and that the knots are secure. We need to be wary of skin care and help the patient move by using a trapeze and make a special effort to look at the patient's entire back. We check distal CMS frequently. And the pin sites we assess by making sure that there's no drainage, although serous drainage is okay, we're doing, we don't want purulent drainage. Make sure there's not undue inflammation and that there's not undue pain there. We cleanse them at least every eight hours as ordered and keep them clean and free of encrustation. What is congenital hip dysplasia? Well, it's a, a broad term that describes a couple of things. Um, conditions of imperfect hip development where the uh, hip can dislocate quite easily. It's reversible if treated early. The causes are not known, but we do know it happens to females more than males. The subluxation of the hip involves stretching of the hip, hip excuse me, stretching of the ligament tear and the hip capsule. Um, dislocation of the hip is not merely the stretching of those ligaments, but the bone actually, the femoral head actually loses contact with the acetabulum. Um, this is hopefully detected early in life when the patient is merely an infant. And some of the ways that it's detected is a uh, what's known as the Othalani test, as the uh, legs and hips are flexed and manipulated forward and backward, the hip can be felt to slip into and out of the acetabulum. If that happens, the patient probably has congenital hip dysplasia. Also, we can use Barlow test, where as the legs and hips are flexed and manipulated forward and backward, an audible click can be heard. This also suggests the patient has congenital hip dysplasia. Other signs are things such as shortening of a limb, an asymmetric thigh, asymmetric gluteal folds, or a broadening of the perineum. How is this treated? Well, hopefully we can treat it early in the child's life because we have a high success if we start treatment at earlier than two months of age. Our goals are to maintain the bone in a safe position with the femur centered in the acetabulum in an attitude of flexion of the hip. The treatment involves either triple, diaper, triple diapering the little guy to keep the legs abducted and flexed, or we can use a Pavlik harness that pulls the legs and hip into a flexed position and is worn full time until x-rays show the joint is stable at usually three to six months. In more severe cases, we may need to use hip spica casts with a gradual change in the child's hip position. And in the most severe cases, they may have to do an open reduction 
for soft tissue uh, obstruction. Soft tissue may get between the hip and the um, acetabulum. Uh, no treatment is recommended if the child is over six years at the time it's discovered. The nursing care of these patients becomes challenging. We need to educate the parents carefully because success, plan, success depends on their understanding of the plan. Uh, if, it, if we're using a uh, spica cast, it's even more challenging in the, because it can't be removed like the harness can. We need to be innovative with bowel and bladder care to protect the cast. Uh, and we can abs uh, increase absorption of, of urine by using uh, more than one diaper at a time or perhaps even using a sanitary napkin which will fit right in the space in the cast. Sometimes we need to use a barrier such as opsite to protect the cast and or skin. And always be sure that the little one hasn't shoved objects down between their skin and the cast. What about club feet in the infant? How is that managed? The general term club feet is to describe deformities of the foot where the foot's twisted out of normal shape. It happens in boys more than girls. Cause is unknown. It needs to be treated immediately, and the goals are to correct and maintain the position and prevent recurrence. This is done by serial application of casts until a marked overcorrection is achieved. These kids will have a cast every few days for a few weeks and then a cast every two weeks until things are correct. Surgical correction is done only if manipulations and casting are ineffective. The nursing care involves assessing the skin under the casts, frequent circulation, motion, and sensation checks, and educating the parents. Again, successive treatment depends on parental commitment. I have cared for a number of persons with hip fractures. Is there anything special about clients who have hip fractures? Well, yeah, there is. Usually, hip fractures occur in the aged. Um, and as a result, we need to worry about their coexisting health problems, which are common in the aged. Uh, typically, they are placed in Buck's traction immediately after their injury in anticipation of their surgery. Uh, while they're in Buck's traction, we need to be careful to check their skin um, underneath the traction device, which is typically a boot. We need to check the alignment of the lower extremity. And we need to check to be sure that the patient hasn't slid down in bed uh, as a result of the pull of the traction devices. We need to make sure that the weights are swinging free of the end of the bed and are not impaired uh, or trapped against the uh, foot of the bed. We need to be wary to make sure the patient gets adequate pain medications, including uh, medications expressly intended for muscle spasm. Uh, position them as well as we can within the constraints of their injury. And we need to be bear in mind not to forget the range of motion for the uninjured extremities because in the aged, if extremities are not used, they very quickly uh, get a limited range of motion in contractures and stiff joints, and that's the last thing we want to have because that will not only impair on the recovery from this injury, but will make their recovery, uh, their, their ability to care for themselves afterwards more uh, less. Postoperatively, uh, people with hip injuries have, or hip surgeries have all the usual considerations, plus our need to check their distal circulation, sensation, and motion. And if a prosthesis was implanted, there's a risk of dislocation if we allow them to adduct or their hip or extremely flex it. So we put an adductor pillow between their knees when they're supine or lying on the good side. Uh, we avoid extreme hip flexion and we avoid turning them onto the operative side. And as soon as possible, we have them get out of bed with PT begin their, their return to regular life. Why do some persons with hip fractures have a plate or a pin and some have a hip replacement? That confused me for a long time too. Uh, let me see if I can make it clearer for you. The blood supply to the head of the femur can be disrupted by a fracture.
the higher the fracture along the neck of the femur, the greater the risk. If there's a fracture inside the joint capsule, usually it's necessary to remove the head of the femur and place a prosthesis. Uh, the nursing care of a patient who's had a hip replacement is to uh, maintain good body alignment, and as I said earlier, no adduction of the hip, no extreme flexion of the hip, good pain control, perhaps using a patient-controlled patient analgesia device. We want to preserve joint function, so many of these patients will have continuous passive range of motion machines. Um, as I said, many of these people are aged and we need to be wary of the hazards of immobility. So we get them up with a walker soon. Um, we be wary of skin assessment and care, particularly from the tape that's covering the dressing on the incision. We're careful about turning and hydration and nutrition. Uh, and we do anti-thromboembolism measures such as compressive hose or compressive devices and heparin. And we prevent infection, particularly pulmonary infection, by being careful with pulmonary toilet. And uh, we are wary of wound infections, and we take a peek at that wound from time to time to make sure that it's not inflamed and draining. Discharge teaching for these people includes that they are not to use a low commode. That results in severe flexion of the hip, um, no leg crossing. Now, if they're fortunate enough to have a fracture outside the joint capsule and have merely a plate or a pin, we leave the head of the femur in, so all these discussions of, of dislocation are uh, irrelevant. The other discussions of hydration and turning and all that still remain relevant. Hip replacement is also done for arthritis, in which case frequently both the head of the femur and the acetabulum are replaced with prosthetics. Why is it that such attention is paid to skin care in the preoperative period before bone surgery? The reason for that is that bone infection can be catastrophic. The bone is less vascular, the, the, the compact bone is less vascular. So the white cells have poor access, there's no lymphatic drainage in bone, and as you know, uh, ligaments, tendons, and cartilage have even worse blood supplies. Uh, so defeating an infection takes a very long time. If there are implants that have been placed and there's an infection in the wound, frequently they must be removed before the infection can be defeated. Treatment is very difficult, um, and particularly since they need antibiotics for a long time, we'd like to be able to give them PO antibiotics instead of IV, and there are very few PO antibiotics that are suitable for osteomyelitis. Um, one thing that docs will sometimes do is open up the wound and actually implant antibiotic beads in the site that will leach out antibiotics slowly over time. Um, and for some anaerobic microorganisms that are causing um, osteomyelitis, uh, hyperbaric oxygen has been used where the patient's placed in a, a chamber and the pressure is increased to push oxygen more vigorously into the blood and thus into the infection area. This is the reason that such uh, attention is paid to scrupulous skin care at the operative site before orthopedic surgery. It seems as though I've cared for more women than men with hip fractures. Also, most of the persons with hip fractures are older. Why? The major reason is the disease osteoporosis, which is the loss of bone mass. It can be a very crippling and painful disease. The leading cause of, it is the leading cause of fractures in females and in the aged. Uh, the risk factors are female gender, increased age, white race, women who've had an oophorectomy, or patients who are immobile, or people who don't take in sufficient dietary calcium. 
The disease begins as early as ages 30 and 40 years, but is not clinically evident until about 60 to 65 years. The areas that are most affected are the spine, the hips, and the wrists. Now, when I say that it's more common in women than men, I mean it is eight times more common in women than in men. And the hypotheses go, well, when we know that women take in less dietary calcium than men, we know that the women have less bone mass to begin with, um, the reabsorption begins earlier uh, in women than in men and increases with menopause, the reabsorption of bone. Pregnancy and breastfeeding depletes body calcium reserves unless there's adequate oral intake during that time. And last but not least, since most women live longer than most men, they are just exposed to the risk of these fractures longer. The prevention, we believe, is ensuring an adequate calcium intake, a good exercise program, because remember, stress causes bone to build more bone. So if we stress them by exercise, we'll have bones that are building, not decaying. Um, and the use of estrogen after menopause is believed to be preventative for osteoporosis in women. You've explained about nursing care for a hip replacement. What about care for a person having a knee replacement? Well, the usual post-op things we've talked about, pulmonary care, pain care, and so on. But in particular for the knee, we need to be wary of distal circulation, motion, and sensation. And we need to encourage the patient to move that leg. They get ankle exercises. They may have a continuous passive motion machine for the hip and knee. And ideally, we get them out of bed the next day on a walker. Get them in a knee immobilizer and have them keep their, knee, their leg elevated when they're up in a chair. Um, the usual measures that we've described for prevention of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism on the surgical tape. What is an arthroscopy? Well, an arthroscopy is insertion of a, a scope into the joint capsule, which allows inspection and surgery through this scope in the capsule. Its advantages over conventional surgery are a more rapid return to activity, a decrease in inflammation, decreased degeneration of the joint, decrease post-traumatic arthritis. The process is that this is done in the operating room under general anesthesia. There is the usual surgical preparation of the skin, and the scope is inserted, and there actually may be multiple puncture sites where the scope goes in one place and the instruments go in another place. Uh, they can inspect what's gone on in there and even remove fragments, uh, shave pieces of cartilage, and make other sorts of repairs through the scope. The post-operative care is similar to uh, other surgery in that we still attend to pain and lungs and urinary and deep vein thrombosis. But in special, we care about distal circulation, motion, and sensation. We use ice to the knee to prevent excessive swelling. Um, swelling will delay the person's return to activity. Put them in a knee immobilizer and elevate the leg. Now, we say a lot about ice and elevation, and a lot of people think it's not a big deal. But real careful and rigorous use of ice and immob immobilization and elevation can tremendously diminish the amount of uh, swelling that occurs in orthopedic injuries and can make a difference between a rapid return to uh, life and work, or a prolonged and expensive recovery. Another kind of orthopedic problem is scoliosis. What is scoliosis? Well, scoliosis is a lateral curvature of the spine. Um, if it's, uh, it occurs more in women than in men. Most of the time we have no idea why it occurs, and 70% it's what we call idiopathic. 
We typically don't treat it unless the curvature is greater than about 20%. Uh, the, the great nursing implication is the uh, need to detect it fairly early. Um, it's early, it, it is apparent early in the teen years. And one of the ways it can be screened for is during physical examination of the patient for other purposes. We can have the patient bend at the waist and then we look for an asymmetry of the scapulae or uh, an unevenness of the hips. One side of the chest will go up and the other down as the patient leans forward. A full workup is far more than simply a physical exam, although the physical exam is very important. A full workup includes x-rays uh, to actually document the exact magnitude of the curvature. If scoliosis is allowed to progress to the point where it becomes severe, um, it can impair the patient's gait, the patient's ability to have a full range of activity, and in profound cases can even um, impair respiratory excursion and result in respiratory failure. If you imagine if a person leans over far enough sideways, the ribs on the side they're leading to would be, become so compressed there'd be no space for uh, expansion for breathing. Um, there's obviously, in addition to all of this, a cosmetic problem. If one's spine is profoundly distorted, it's obvious to everyone, and this is something you can't dress up to hide. The treatment is a couple of different things. Um, one is a brace, um, which is worn until bone growth stops. Now, remember, we're trying to diagnose this in the early teen years, and, and bone growth typically stops in the late teen years. So we're talking about wearing a brace for, oh, probably six years or so. Um, the brace that is most commonly used is a Milwaukee brace which prevents the curvature from progressing, but does not straighten the curvature that already exists. All the more reason to try to catch the disease when it's in its early stages. If, the, if it has progressed too far and there's a decrease in pulmonary function or gait difficulty or a patient who's unwilling to wear the brace, there is the option of surgery using Harrington rods or Luke rods or Cortrell Dubasset instrumentation to uh, straighten and immobilize the spine. Okay, while he's talking about that, there was other uh, types of um, anomalies on the NCLEX as well. So he just talked about lordosis, right? Uh, I know that was on the NCLEX, but then there was a little known, uh, it's rare, uh, ankylosing spondylitis. What is ankylosing spondylitis? Well, ankylosing spondylitis is on the NCLEX, and it talked about, I'll give you a quick overview of what it is. Ankylosing, ankylosing spondylitis is a form of arthritis that primary of primarily affects the spine, although other joints can become involved. This is very painful. What's happening is, uh, over the years, the, the, the vertebrae become fused together, and eventually the person will not be able to move just their head. They'll have to move their whole body. Uh, my ex-husband had that. Uh, the, what I wanted to make sure that you knew was that 2.7 uh, million Americans are affected by uh, ankylosing spondylitis. It's more prominent in men. Symptoms are 
uh, it is important to note that the course of ankylosing spondylitis varies greatly from person to person. So too can the onset of the symptoms, like my ex-husband, he got it when he was 18. Uh, all those symptoms usually start to appear in, the, in late adolescence or early adulthood, ages 17 to 45. Symptoms can occur in children or much later in life. So it's uh, kind of debilitating. As the person gets older, it even affects their hip. So most common symptoms for the NCLEX is frequent pain, stiffness in the lower back and buttocks, uh, which becomes, uh, which comes on gradually over the course of a few weeks or a few months. Uh, the, the, he's got a lot of problem with pain, chronic pain, on both the both the left and the right sides of his hips. I noticed here it says pain and tenderness spreading to the ribs, shoulders, back hips, thighs, heels is possible as well. So again, this is a form of uh, arthritis and you treat it like that. Diagnosis. A rheumatologist is, uh, is commonly the type of physician who will diagnose ankylosing spondylitis since they are the doctors who uh, are specially trained in diagnosing uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And we're going to have uh, x-rays, family history. We're going to have a test called HLA-B27. Are also factors in making the diagnosis. Just know that test. Just, you know, so this is not a, like, what the heck's that when it comes up on the NCLEX. Uh, is there a cure? No, there's no cure. The only thing we can do is treat the symptoms. All right, so that was ankylosing spondylitis. I wanted to tell you that it was on the NCLEX, and that way it won't, you know, grab you by surprise. Uh, really, really quick here. Ankylosing spondylitis. Then we have the lordosis versus a normal spine. Lordosis, the, the spine is curved like way, way in. You have the person's, uh, the person's uh, sacral area, and then the spine goes uh, like way into, way above his gluteus maximus, right? That's lordosis. Again, there's nothing you can really do about these spinal problems. Except treat the underlying uh, pain. So that's lordosis, ankylosing spondylos, uh, spondylitis, and then there was kyphosis. Kyphosis. K Y P H O S I S. Kyphosis. And that uh, looks like the, the um, from the back. The uh, spine is totally curved. The patient's neck is totally out of line. And uh, uh, the that's the scoliosis part. And the kyphosis, uh, the patient on the side, from the side, 
looks like he's hunch hunchback. Again, you can look at pictures on my skeletal system uh, board on my pictures page. I'm just telling you this so you're not caught off guard. Again, the way you really treat this is, you know, you can wear the uh, the braces like uh, like uh, James is talking about. If it's get, if it got if it gets caught earlier in life, but really you have to treat the the pain. Okay, I want you guys to know, and of course you know, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis. I want you to know that stuff. All right, let's go back to James because he's doing a pretty good job. 